Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray now in this moment as your word is preached that you will help us to hear, to listen intently to your voice through your spirit as you proclaim your truth to us. May we be ready to obey and to respond with faith. Lord, we thank you for this Easter Sunday. We thank you for this chance to be reminded once again that your son Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I was, I was trying to figure out what to preach for this Easter Sunday. I, I looked through my previous Easter messages to try to get some inspiration. And I noticed that uh, in the past you know, years, I've already preached through all of the resurrection passages that you would find in the Gospels. And uh, I covered 1 Corinthians 15. So I was kind of wondering what other texts would be fitting to preach. And then I also noticed that out of my previous Easter messages, I focused a lot of attention on the historicity of the resurrection. I, I was trying to give credible reasons for believing that Jesus did rise bodily from the dead. And I was, I, I was trying to speak into the skepticism that I believe that a lot of our non-Christian friends share. They have a hard time believing that a man, much less a crucified man, could rise from the dead. And so along with all the other supernatural claims in the Christian faith, they they sort of just questioned the whole faith altogether. But, you know, I, I was listening to a podcast recently, and I heard a rather interesting remark. The host was saying that in generations past, people's skepticism of the resurrection led them to question regeneration. That is, their intellectual doubts about the resurrection led to existential doubts about regeneration. That idea that Christian salvation involves a complete transformation of the self where you essentially become a new creation. So in the past, it was intellectual doubts that were more prominent. But nowadays, it's people's skepticism about regeneration that is leading them to question resurrection. This is especially true for those who formerly identified as a Christian Perhaps a, a pastor or some other spiritual leader that they once looked up to had a dramatic moral failure. And so they were confronted with the ugliness of religious hypocrisy. Or maybe it was just their own religious experience that they were dealing with. And, and they struggled to see within themselves any identifiable change. They kept dealing with the same struggles and, and the same issues over and over again. And, and all of this talk of regeneration and of conversion or of, of transformation, it just seemed more and more like wishful thinking. So eventually, their existential doubts about regeneration, particularly their own, led to intellectual doubts about the resurrection and the Christian faith altogether. And so in such cases, it's existential doubts that are more prominent and more pressing. Well, I found that observation to be quite helpful. And I realized that in past Easter messages, I've spent a lot of time addressing intellectual doubts, but I haven't given all that much attention to existential ones. And so this Easter, I want to speak to those who are struggling, not so much in believing that the resurrection is plausible, 
but those who are struggling to believe that real life change is possible. Perhaps, perhaps you've grown disillusioned with Christianity because it just doesn't seem to work, at least as you've expected it to. You were promised that once you became a Christian, you would become a new creation. The old is gone, that the new is come. You, you, were, you, were, you were promised that everything would be different, but you don't really feel all that different. And you're still dealing with the same old sins and the same old issues as before. And so that's why I chose an Easter passage that still deals with the resurrection, but I believe with a more personal and, and a much more existential approach. And so that's why we're in Romans chapter 6. Because here in our text, we're going to see the connection between belief in the resurrection and the experience of real change and the newness of life. The connection really comes down to what you consider what you believe to be true. And of course, it matters what you consider about the resurrection, but here it comes down to what you consider about yourself in light of the resurrection. Now, we started Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4 last week, and there we saw that the Apostle Paul was addressing a common criticism that was often laid out against the gospel of grace that he preached. And so we learned in the beginning of the letter of Romans that he actually has never met these Christians. He didn't plant this church, which is why he, he, he writes a letter that goes into great detail and, and, and provides a, a systematic explanation of the gospel, including possible objections. Because he's thinking that maybe these Roman Christians are dealing with the same objections that he's encountered before in other cities that he's preached in. So here in chapter 6, the common criticism that Paul is mentioning is the accusation that preaching a gospel of grace will only encourage people to continue in sin and never to experience real change and the newness of life. So this hypothetical objector is obviously also concerned with experiencing real change in life, but he thinks Paul's gospel is going about it all the wrong way. What this objector is hearing Paul say is that if you just profess with your mouth the right answers about Jesus and you believe in your heart certain theological truths, then all of your sins, like past, present, and future, all of them are forgiven. And to him, to this objector, that sounds like a recipe for moral disaster. It sounds like giving people a license to sin. It sounds like you're just saying, do whatever you want because all your sins are forgiven. Well, to that objection, Paul explains that the gospel of grace doesn't just forgive your sins. It doesn't just wipe your slate clean. No, the gospel of grace goes further to change your identity altogether, which fundamentally changes your relationship to sin. And this new identity of yours, he says, is found in the person of the crucified and resurrected Lord. Once you consider yourself in light of your new identity, in light of these new realities, once you see yourself as God sees you in Christ Jesus, then it results in real change and in the newness of life. So, friends, as we look more closely at our text at verses 5 to 11, 
there are three considerations I'd like you to see. Three considerations for the Christian. First, consider your union with Christ. Second, consider yourself dead to sin. And third, consider yourself alive to God. Let's begin with our first consideration. Consider your union with Christ. This is mentioned in verse 5. Let me just read that again. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Paul's argument here is, is, is going to be that if Christians have died with Christ, then we've died to sin. And so we certainly shall live with him in the newness of resurrection life. That's going to be the main argument in our text. But all of that, all of that regarding our relationship to to sin and to Christ, all of that is founded on this idea of our union with Christ. If you think about it, the idea of Jesus dying for us, receiving for us the penalty of sin that we deserve, that would actually make no sense without union with Christ. In fact, without union with Christ, his death would really have been a travesty of justice. An innocent person would have been killed in the place of the guilty. That is simply unjust. Perhaps you've heard the sermon illustration before where a a judge finds a defendant guilty and hands down a punishment of some large monetary fine. But then, as the illustration goes, the judge graciously steps down from his bench, he pulls out his own wallet, and he pays the fine out of his own pocket. Now, that illustration is often used to convey the idea that Jesus graciously paid the penalty of sin for us. But that illustration has one glaring problem. Such a transaction, if it were to have occurred, would be unjust. It would be wrong for an innocent party to pay for the wrong committed by the guilty party. So how is the crucifixion not an act of injustice? How can God acquit guilty sinners and and condemn his innocent son and not be guilty himself of wrongdoing? Well, friends, the key is the doctrine of union with Christ. It teaches that believers do not exist separately from Christ because in God's eyes, we exist in Christ, just as Christ lives in us through his spirit. So at the cross, guilt and punishment wasn't transferred between two separate individuals, two separate persons, one innocent and one guilty, like like a judge and a defendant. No, Jesus and believers are united as one, bound together by a real spiritual union. So when Jesus died, God considered all who would trust in his son to be present with his son in his death. When Jesus died on that tree, we died with him. Christians, we don't get off scot-free. We don't get a pass. No, the gospel says that we owe a death. And by virtue of our union with Christ, we died on that cross with Christ, and we paid that debt. But 
without having to taste death ourselves. Christ, our substitute, tasted death for us. And that's the good news. And all of this occurred in God's eyes. All of this occurred in the eyes of his law. Our union with Christ involved a positional change, a, a status change. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about positional sanctification, uh, about how at the moment of our conversion, our position or our status before God was fundamentally changed. Well, union with Christ explains that positional change. A, a helpful comparison for us would be to compare it to a marital union between a husband and a wife, which the same Paul says in Ephesians 5 actually refers to salvation. It refers to Christ and the church. Now, let's just say within that marital union, you, uh, the, the husband and wife, you were to co-sign a loan. Let's imagine it to be a very big loan. So now in the eyes of the law, you both share that debt and you are both equally burdened by its crushing weight. So unlike the judge and the defendant who are viewed as two separate persons, a husband and wife are actually viewed as one in union with one another. Now, let's imagine that the wife were to get into an accident and uh, for whatever reason now is somehow incapacitated from working. So she can't contribute anything to paying off that loan. But the husband lovingly does the work on behalf of the both of them and pays off the debt. That transaction, in this case, it would still be one-sided, but it would be completely just because both of them are in view. They act as one. That, my friends, I think is a helpful way for us to understand what happened at the cross. It was a one-sided transaction where Christ died for his bride. He died for the church. But because of our union with Christ, what took place at the cross had both Christ and the church in view together. So when Jesus died in a positional sense and in a forensic, a legal sense, we died with him paying off our debts together. So now we are positionally considered to be debt-free in the eyes of God. And, and, and please don't for a second think that this is just merely imaginary or, or, or just symbolic. That what took place at the cross is very real. Because whatever exists in God's eyes is most fundamentally real and has real consequences for how we ought to live our lives. That's Paul's whole point in Romans 6. If you have truly died with Christ at the cross, if that transaction was real, then there are real consequences. Namely, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That is, we're not only guaranteed the certainty of a future resurrection, there's also the promise to experience the newness of life in the here and now. So, friends, think about this with me. Because of your union with Christ, 
there has been a fundamental change in your identity altogether. Positionally, you have entered into a new relationship towards sin and towards God, but in diametrically opposite ways. That's what Paul is now going to go on to explain in verses 6 to 10, summing it up really in verse 11 with a command, as he says, to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So those are the two considerations that logically flow out of our consideration of our union with Christ. So because you are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, then you should consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. So let's, let's take each of those at a time. Let's uh, first uh, consider this next consideration. Consider yourself dead to sin. That's emphasized in verses 6 to 7. So let me read that again. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, notice with me in verse 6 how Paul doesn't just say we were crucified with Christ. Now, he specifically says, our old self was crucified with him. Now, that phrase there, the old self, or, or literally the old man, is a term that Paul often uses in his letters, and he often sets it in contrast with the new self or the new man. Now, he's not talking here about two competing natures inside of a Christian, two, two, two natures you know, going at it in tension within us. That idea would, would, I think, cede too much power and too much influence to this old self that he's referring to. Now, the old self or the, the old man is really referring to the first man, to Adam, whose name in Hebrew means man. You see, in Paul's theology, all of humanity is born in Adam. We come into this world in Adam in relation to him. Our identity is rooted in Adam, in the old man. And what that means is that Adam is not just our first father. Adam is our federal head. And that's a concept that, that is very important for us to be able to understand what Paul is saying in our text. So what does it mean for Adam to be a federal head? Well, it's, it's, it's like how in the federal government, our federal head would be the president. So he's the head of the nation. He represents and he speaks on behalf of all citizens. And it doesn't matter if, if he was or if he wasn't your choice to represent you, just by being a U.S. citizen, by virtue of being a citizen, the president is your federal head. Well, it, the same would go for Adam. You could argue, yeah, but I didn't choose Adam to represent me. I, I just want to represent myself. But the fact remains, by virtue of you being a human being created in the image of God, the first human, Adam, functions as your federal head. So what that means theologically is that whatever Adam does extends to you. And what did Adam do? Well, 
in Genesis 3. The old man distrusted and disobeyed God, which resulted in death. And not just bodily death, because in Genesis 3, it describes a spiritual death resulting in a spiritual captivity to sin. That means all of us are born in Adam, meaning we are all born under the enslaving power of sin. We are captive to sin. Paul mentions this enslavement to sin at the end of verse 6, if you look there. So as long as I am now living my life in Adam, in, in the old self, under his headship, then I am under the reign and tyranny of sin. That, my friends, is the state of everyone who is outside of Christ. And so that means if, if you're not yet a Christian, you are in Adam. You are living in relation to the old man, the old self. And that means you are under the enslaving power of sin. But please, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that as a non-Christian, you can't do good things or be a nice person. You really have to understand the way that Paul is defining sin in the book of Romans. In chapter 14, verse 23, he says, quote, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if, if faith in Christ with a desire to please Christ is not what is motivating you to do what you do, then what you're doing is sin according to the book of Romans. So with that understanding of sin, Paul is saying that everyone who is still in Adam is still a slave to sin. You can't help but sin. It just comes natural to you because as a non-Christian, it is natural to not trust God nor to seek to please him in all that you do. But once we are saved, once we are united with Christ by faith, then the old man and his slavery to, to sin has no hold on us anymore. We are liberated in Christ. We are set free. We are saved not just from sin's penalty, but from sin's power. That's what Paul meant when he said in verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin, from sin's power. He's citing really a general principle here. Death severs the hold of sin on a person. You can't tell a dead person what to do. The dead are free, as, as free as free can be. Upon death, all debts are canceled. All contracts are voided. All obligations are lifted. So if the Son has set you free, Oh, you are free indeed. And remember, he sets you free by uniting with you and dying for you. So you are no longer in Adam. You are in Christ. You're in the second Adam. You're in the new man. He's your new federal head. And whatever he does, whatever Christ does, now extends to you. So as Christ died, you died. And in verse 10, it says that, he, that the death he died, he died to sin once for all, which is why we are now to consider ourselves 
dead to sin. Friends, do you realize what it means to be dead to sin? To no longer be under its sway? It means as a Christian, you can say no to sin. You can actually reject it. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 12 says, The grace of God has appeared to offer salvation, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Christians, unlike those who are still in Adam, have the power of contrary choice. By the grace of God, we can choose to trust in Jesus and to please him with our actions or we can choose to do otherwise. Christians never sin by necessity. We sin by willful choice. We can never excuse our sinful behavior by suggesting that we just couldn't help it, that we had no choice. The, the, the devil made me do it. No, my friends. God says that every time that we, his people, face temptation, he gives us a way of, of escape. And so that just makes those times when we do choose to sin that much more heinous. And it makes us that much more debtors to God's grace. You know, friends, I, I have a sense that, that for many of you, this could very well be your Juneteenth moment. If you've been a Christian for some time, maybe you've been, um, uh, uh, you, you, you're, you're, the old man has, 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 been, uh, has, has been crucified for some time. You, you're, you're a new man. You're in Christ. And yet, for many of you, you might feel like you're still living under the enslaving power of the old man. And so in many ways, in many ways, you are like one of the 250,000 black slaves in the state of Texas who by 1885 had never heard of the Emancipation Proclamation, which went into effect two years earlier, who were free now, but continued to live enslaved. News traveled slowly in those days, and so it wasn't until June 19th, 1865, that Union General Gordon Granger stood on the balcony of Galveston's Ashton Villa. It's a historic house that you can still visit today. And there, he proclaimed the good news of freedom to all. And so it's, it took place on June 19th, and that's why we celebrate that as Juneteenth. You know, I, I kind of like, feel like a Gordon Granger proclaiming emancipation to Christians who who never knew how free they really are from the power of sin. Ever since the moment you became a Christian, that old man was crucified. Your life under Adam's headship was over. You have been dead to sin, and you have been set free from its power ever since the moment of your conversion. But now is your Juneteenth moment. Today is the day that you finally hear and understand the good news of your freedom. Today is the day that you consider yourself dead to sin. Hallelujah. If that's your Juneteenth moment today. 
Well, friends, once we consider ourselves dead to sin, verse 11 tells us to now consider ourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so this is our third and final point. Consider yourself alive to God. Let's keep reading in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So here Paul's simply reasserting the logic of verse 5. If we have died with Christ, that is, if we've been united with him in a death like his, then we believe that we will also live with him. We will be united with him in a resurrection like his. So to be a Christian is to be not just a free person, but a brand new person, not just forgiven, but resurrected. Not just dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Now, in verse 9, Paul goes on to explain the kind of life that Christ is living now. Essentially, he's living an immortal life. Listen to verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So Christ's resurrection signaled a decisive break from the power of sin. Unlike Lazarus, who was resurrected only to live another however many years before he had to die again. But Jesus will never die. He was raised to immortality in a body that would never die. And since we have been united with him in a resurrection like his, Christ has defeated death for us. And what that essentially means is according to to, to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus has removed death's sting for us. Death, if you think about it, stung stung Jesus and left its stinger in his side, in the side of our crucified Lord. But just like a bee that used its stinger and is destined to die, death sealed its fate when it stung Christ. I know it still buzzes around, but it can't hurt those who are united with Christ. And at the final resurrection, death itself will die. Now, when I say death can't hurt those united with Christ, I'm not suggesting that, that Christians won't experience a bodily death. But I am suggesting that bodily death for the Christian should no longer be considered a feared enemy, but should be treated instead as an obedient servant. Death is like an usher, ushering us into our our true country, or, or like a doorman welcoming us into our true home. So if we have died with Christ, then sin is is no longer, not only no longer our master, but death is no longer our enemy. Being alive to God in Christ Jesus would then mean living a resurrection life, a life without fear. Friends, could it, could it be that the reason why we struggle to experience real change in our lives, that the reason why we're not experiencing the newness of life, could it be that we have been so crippled by fear? The tyranny of fear has crippled many of us from making significant strides in our walk with God. 
I mean, why do we center so much attention and put so much effort into pursuing worldly riches or, or worldly fame and acclaim? Well, why don't we give even half of the attention and effort towards the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of, of life transformation? It's because we fear death. It's because we, we keep believing the lie that, that this life is it. That, that you only live once and that this is as good as it gets. We act as if death is the end of the line, the conclusion of our story. And so along with the world, we, we try to accomplish it all, to achieve it all, to accrue it all in this life, which then explains why we have such a hard time experiencing real change. And why we might grow disillusioned with regeneration and eventually skeptical of resurrection. What we fail as Christians to consider is ourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. What, what we fail to consider is that we are literally immortal since we have been united with Christ in a resurrection like his. What we fail to consider is that, is that to see this life, in, in, in the words of, of C.S. Lewis, as really merely the cover and title page. And now, at last, upon death, we will, quote, begin chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. If we would only consider our true identity from God's vantage point, if we could see ourselves as he sees us, well, then we would be living new lives. Lives lived from a completely new vantage point and oriented around a new perspective and, and new priorities. As Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, we have been crucified with the Son of God, buried with him in his death. So we too will be raised with the Son to the newness of life, and we will certainly be reunited with him in a resurrection like his, a resurrection to come. That's our hope. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this Resurrection Sunday, this Easter morning, to be reminded once again that our Lord Jesus is risen. And not only is he risen, all of us who are united with him are risen with him. We are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Help us to see our lives as you see us and to live out our lives from that vantage point from this day forth. Empower us by your spirit to live alive to God. In Jesus' name we pray, our resurrected Lord. Amen.